Proposition 209 has hindered public policy, thwarted opportunity, and maintained economic disparity long enough. It's time to give voters a chance to right this wrong. I ask for your I vote on ACA 5. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. That was President Pro Tem Tony Atkins in the California Senate speaking just before the historic vote that took California one step closer to undoing the quarter-century-old ban on affirmative action in the state. Yes, Lewis, that was a big deal, and the legislature's effort to put the repeal of Proposition 209 on the November ballot was swift and decisive, though largely along party lines. You know, the vote reflected the change in the state's racial and ethnic makeup over the past two decades and the fact that the racial justice movement is resonating and people are re-examining some of the deeper issues about race in America. We'll hear a little later from outgoing University of California President Janet Napolitano about her thoughts on the issue, as well as the prospects for reopening UC campuses this fall. The other big moving part this week was the state budget, which Governor Newsom and the legislature agreed on. This will be forever known as the COVID-19 budget. You can see its impact on plunging state revenues. And one big question is, what will be the true cost of returning to school in a pandemic? Yes, but amazingly, somehow the legislature was able to figure out how to pass a budget without requiring school districts to make massive cuts. Instead, uh, they'll get late payments in state funding known as deferrals. So in some ways, it's pushing the pain, at least for the state, down the road. But the burden will be on the districts to come up with the money in the short term, at least. And across the board, school districts are hoping that the federal government will come up with billions more in aid for education. You know, the name deferral probably rings a bell with some uh, folks who were around here for the Great Recession. And that's a strategy that the state used back then. I'm going to refresh people's memories with a question and answer on deferrals this week, how they work, what concerns they are, and the fact that actually they're not equally distributed among districts. So we'll talk about that perhaps next week, Lewis. That's on the EdSource website, right? Exactly. Let's start with a business perspective on the budget. We have on the line Sarah Batches, Chief Governmental Relations Officer for the California Association of School Business Officials, known as CASBO. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for inviting me. So overall, are you and your members pleased? Are you anxious? Are you reassured heading into the next year by the budget that you'll have before you? We are relieved to see no reductions going into this year. We have such level of uncertainty as we begin our reopening plans, communicating with our communities, staff, and parents on how to properly and safely return to school. So we really recognize the heavy lift that took to ensure that schools could receive additional federal fund. The thing about being on the fiscal side of the house is that we're always cautious because it's important to balance our budgets. It's required by law. Well, the governor seems to think that you have enough money, you meaning all schools, to reopen in person. And do you think that's true? Is there enough to get the job rolling in August? Well, we're still determining that. Every LEA is working with their county public health official. And Sarah, when you say LEA, that stands for local education agency. That could be school districts, could be county office of education, charter schools as well. 
Charter schools as well. You are definitely correct. The, the fun part of being in an education policy is the love for acronyms. So we're all assessing the state-generated uh, guidance from the Department of Education, the Department of Public Health that was released two weeks ago. And schools have to determine individually if their staff, depending on their workforce, can return safely. We are serving parents to determine what their needs and wishes and feedback are. And I think that they're going to be a critical component in how we redesign the layout of returning back to school. And what we keep hearing is that there are parents who want a hybrid model with the option to allow their students to continue being at home while receiving their educational services. There will be a prohibition on layoffs of teachers and most of the hourly workers called classified workers who range from bus drivers to teacher's aides to kitchen help and custodial help. There'll be a moratorium on most of those. They won't be laid off. And yet you and the groups in turn didn't think that was a good idea. Why is that? We don't believe that it's appropriate to bind the hands of local government entities. Every school district still has to determine what their fiscal situations will look like. Although we're very appreciative of the redirection of $2.3 billion for CalPERS and CalSTRS to buy down the contribution rates for employers for the next two years, we still see health care premiums rising, liability insurance rising in the double digits. And so all of those costs have not had a moratorium. And for LEAs, we are very critical of how do we manage our expenditures and align them to our revenues. We unfortunately, unlike cities and counties, can't raise um, many of the revenue sources that they can. And so at the same time, we are not seeing then those local measures to allow school districts to be able to raise revenues to accommodate for these ongoing cost increases. In terms of the larger picture, are school officials and really the number crunchers, are they breathing a little more easily now than they would have been if the governor had moved ahead with his proposal, which was, I think, to make the cuts and then hope that federal monies would come in. We've kind of flipped that now. We take one impossible problem at a time. Uh, we now have to pivot in reassessing those uh, reopening plans. It has thrown in a different uh, flavor into the conversations because now we have detailed instructions. And then it, it does have different requirements that we have yet to see. There is now a new LCAP, the learning plan. There's a lot that's to be determined, and the federal funds come with a soon-to-expire date, and we need to make sure that every uh, school district understands what are the rules from the federal government on how to expedite those resources so that we ensure that we're meeting the needs of our students. These are the funds that they got under the CARES Act the first round, right? And the additional funding that now has been allocated under this new budget. There was additional federal funds that have been appropriated, which really does help mitigate reductions. That was Sarah Butches of the California Association of School Business Officials. Well, John, no question that districts are going to face major financial challenges, but the real test will be how the budget plays out on the ground in terms of the cost of bringing students back to school and the possibility that I think everyone is dreading that there may be cycles of school closures and reopenings and new models for distance learning that 
school districts will have to put into effect. I think a good test for all of this will be Fresno Unified in the Central Valley. It's been hit hard lately by the virus, and there are really deep pockets of poverty in Fresno. We have on the line Superintendent Bob Nelson, who can explain to us sort of how he's going to manage all these moving parts. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be with you. The governor and leaders of the legislature say that while they wish they could have funded schools more, they made K-12 their priority and schools should be able to open with in-person instruction safely with the money that they get. Do you agree? Well, safely, I think, is the order of the hour question, right? I think the one things we were talking about previously that we can assure ourselves is that this is not going to be the same situation we're facing today as it is tomorrow. And moreover, the general feeling tone of everybody in the public populace is that we're going to do it wrong or in a way that makes them upset. So we want to bring kids back safely with proper physical distancing and proper mitigations in place, mask wearing and all of that universal mitigations and precautions. But um, all of that does come at a cost. Finances are not the number one priority driver right now. Really trying to mitigate what constitutes risk for kids, I think, is what we're trying to grapple with now. We know that kids being in school and exposed to COVID represents a risk, but there's also associated risks with kids being out of school. Like We are the primary support for nutritious meals. We provide access to primary medical care. We provide access to mental health supports. We provide regular check-ins from a domestic violence and child abuse perspective. So one has to weigh all of those mitigating risk factors. And if you're weighing that risk, whether you go to Costco or Home Depot, you probably ought to be weighing that same risk as it relates to sending kids back to school. So it's an interesting time to be a school leader, to be sure. Yeah. So are you feeling a little better at least than where you were back in May when you saw potential 8 or 10% budget? Yeah, cut? very much so. We're thankful for the mitigations in terms of, if nothing else, it's defraying the cost to, it gives us another year to kind of plan. Um, I'll be honest, deferrals are a hard way to balance the budget because if it ends up us having to accrue additional debt based on not being able to meet our payroll and needing a trans loan, for example, um, that's a painful way to have uh, mitigations in perspective. But uh, yeah, the trans Bob are those short-term loans that uh, you need to get on the on the private market. Yeah, and and a lot of districts have faced that. When I was a superintendent in a very small 1,200 student district, it was a regular course uh, of action for us. We've not had that in the last 15 years at a minimum in Fresno Unified, so that would be new rarefied error for us. Um, we you know hold our credit rating sacred. We try to be responsible fiscally and. Having to accrue debt against your own expected revenue is a hard way to, to go. You know, it's it's a one-year fix over a multi-year problem. We still are slated to deficit spend $40 million over a three-year span, and that's not without a lot of additional bells and whistles. That's with us contracting and being responsible. But I mean, we are thankful with everything else we have moving right now, with COVID plus racial unrest plus the economic collapse written large, that some mitigation is put into place. We just need to you know, express gratitude and be thankful for that. It's not as draconian as it was in May, as you outlined. So what are your plans, Bob, for reopening in the fall? A lot of districts are going to hybrid models to sort of bring students in for a couple of days and then they go home, do distance learning and come back. What are you looking at? We surveyed our community. 20,000 kids responded to a survey for our 74,000 student population, which we think is a fairly good sample. We did a lot of hand over hand, making sure we got um, a wide array of, of uh, response from across our city. And it looks like 70% of our community, three out of four families, want to have their kids back in some form. Now, granted, that's been before we've had some additional associated risks and that the numbers keep climbing. But 
So we were looking at if we can provide distance learning for the 30% of folks who want to stay home and help people understand exactly what they're getting into, that we would try to maintain a six-foot distance. We would try to do mask provisions universally across the system, that we're going to do screening ahead of time, that we will have you know, plexiglass in the front offices, and, and you know, we're going to expand the footprint of transportation to try to get, and we're asking people to support us, transport your own kids, having immediate places where we can keep kids separate and distinct if they present with a fever and whatnot, if we put all these mitigations in place that we do it in a way that is responsive and responsible as we possibly can, but also having families realize, like, none of these scenarios is perfect. Social distancing is not a perfect scenario. Neither is mask wearing, right? Everybody's, they got it right. Little kids are not going to leave a mask on all day. You'd be silly to think it was going to be that way. But with all of these imperfect scenarios, how can you put enough layers of mitigation in place to make sure that the totality of the circumstances is as safe as you can make it? So so we're really looking at that. Either stay home, have a choice, stay and, and be in a distance learning model or understand what the risks are and come back with us. And then we have to find teachers that want to work in a similar vein, right? There are those who want to stay remote as well as those that want to come back. You know, we have faculty members that are in a COVID-sensitive aspect in their own, you know, lives. They have diabetes or they're above a certain age range or, you know. And so trying to provide, you know, something for everyone, knowing that there's no solution which is totally risk-free. I mean, that's, that's the brass tacks reality of it. We're talking with Superintendent Bob Nelson from Fresno Unified. One of the big additional costs that a lot of people are worried about is all these costs to mitigate the impact of the virus. Do you have the funds for that? So we actually tried to contemplate that in our most recent budget. We're thankful for our trustees who did that. Originally, we set aside $13.1 million specifically for COVID-19 associated costs. If you do have to go back to distance learning for everyone, have you solved the connectivity and the computer issue? I would say we're in a much, much better place, right? We realized when we went out in March, we were not in a place of being able to kind of make that a robust option for families. We put 60,000 devices on the street since March 13th to now. Luckily, we live in an urban core, so for the most part, Wi-Fi access is readily available. It's not universal across our city, but we've been exploring things there, too. We put a bus with Wi-Fi access out in a neighborhood and let people come nearby and manage that. We also established like a hotline for all of the hours at school or in session, 8 to 5 every day for families who just need technological support in all the native languages that we have in the Valley. Um, we have a lot of infrastructure in place now, John, that we did not have on the 13th of March, which is fascinating. We don't anticipate getting that level of grace from our community again. If we do do distance learning, we will have to mandate content. We will have to have you know, mandated attendance. All of that will have to be present, which we were not doing at the end of March. Um, it has to function much more like if you're taking a remote class at the community college or at the university, it has to function in that same way. Well, Bob, thank you for sharing some of the complexities with us. People should know how difficult it is to organize this return to school, and best of luck. My pleasure. That was Bob Nelson, superintendent of Fresno Unified. Of course, it's not just K-12 schools that are struggling to figure out what to do in the fall, juggling their books and a million logistical details. Colleges are in the same boat, and they have an additional challenge because students also are often living on campus. That's going to be the case at the University of California when all the campuses that have announced their plans for the fall, and that's all of them except for UC San Diego, that all of them say they want to bring you know, many students back. Not clear how many. It's going to depend on how many they can fit into the dorms and so on. But our own Larry Gordon sat down with UC President Janet Napolitano, 
will be leaving a post in just a few weeks. Larry has been reporting on Napolitano ever since she arrived at UC. And not surprisingly, Napolitano says much of her remaining time at UC will be dealing with just what will happen with students and everyone else on the university's campuses in the fall. It turns out that reopening a campus is a lot more complicated than shutting one down. It's a really complex set of issues, but, you know, we're working through them and campuses are are already announcing their initial plans. And I say initial because I think as we go through this summer, they'll be adding to them and improving them, you know, as we go through. So, but I I think that's going to be the number one thing in my last month or so as president. In terms of the reopenings, do you think that enrollment's going to be down? I mean, so many people are, have been dissatisfied, not just with, you know, UCs online, but across the country and people and, and coming freshmen think, oh, maybe I should delay. I don't want this half hybrid experience. What do you think is going to happen with your enrollments? Based on the statements of intent to register, the SIRs, for freshmen, those were due May 1st. And we had targeted 43,500 and we had something like 42,500, so just a bit below our target. Interestingly, almost all of the uh, decrease was in international students, and that has a budgetary implication because, of course, they, they pay full freight. So we are working over the summer to try to prevent melt and to reach out to students and encourage them to enroll or return You know, one of the arguments I make, frankly, is when you take a gap year, it's usually because you're going to travel or you have some kind of fancy internship lined up. And, you know, those opportunities really aren't there in a pandemic world. So what are you going to do? Stay home and bother your parents? I mean, you might as well make progress towards your degree. So that's what we're encouraging students to do. But are you worried there is going to be a melt? Well, there's always some melt. The, the question is how much of a, of a melt will there be? And, and, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think as students kind of survey what's going on around them and what's available to them, you know, staying enrolled and making progress toward their degree is a really good option. So I, I don't think it will be as calamitous as was first predicted. That's for sure. And what do you say about the dorms? You mentioned that before. Is there going to be some formula that if you, know, you live within 100 miles, you cannot get a dorm because we're dropping down from triples to singles? Or you know, how, how will they allocate the, the dorm rooms? So each of the campuses is deciding how to allocate dorm space. I think for the most part, they're giving priority to students who have no, nowhere else to go. Students for whom living in a dormitory community would be most helpful. So, for example, first-gen students and so forth. Then there are some campuses that are looking also at kind of a geographic limitation. So, you know, if you live closer than 25 miles to campus, you are low priority for getting a dorm. So those are the kinds of details that are being worked through now. You know, a lot of people forget that it was the University of California that took the lead in undoing affirmative action in the state. It was led by Regent Ward Connolly and backed by then-Governor Wilson. So pretty big deal that the university is now 
the forefront of trying to get this reversed. Larry Gordon asked Janet Napolitano for reviews on the possible return of affirmative action to the university a quarter of a century after the university dispensed with it. We should be taking into account the composition of the students who, you know, we should be accessible to. So, and we've made progress in that area, but, you know, 209 is a, is a barrier. You know, it seems also, you know, we practice holistic admissions. You know, we have a list of 14 factors. And, you know, it's, it, it does seem artificial when the only factor you can't consider is race, ethnicity, or gender, as if those have nothing to do with a student. It's an artificial limitation. But I'll just to finish up about that, but, you know, if you're going to get even closer, consider that ratio of the state, Asian Americans are way, way out of line with their with their representation in the state. They're double, you know, their representation at the university that it is, you know, within the state population. So, I mean, wouldn't the logical conclusion be that their numbers would ultimately drop at the university? I don't know, Larry. Um, I do think that we would want greater representation of African American and Latinx students, but in a world where we're having and have had vigorous enrollment growth that is likely to continue in some form or fashion. I'm not sure it's a, such a zero-sum game. That was outgoing UC President Janet Napolitano. There's lots of speculation as to who will be succeeding her. No word on that yet. One of the big questions is whether it will be someone from a more academic background, which Napolitano didn't have, or someone with the political savvy that she had, and which I have to say seems to have served the university quite well the last few years. As you'll recall, she was a governor in Arizona and then was Secretary of Homeland Security and U.S. Attorney along the way as well. Before we go, we'd like to highlight a new project. Beginning next week, EdSource, along with the Ball Frost Group, will be bringing you a podcast mini-series of conversations between school leaders and Carl Cohn, one of California's best-known educators. Let's hear from Carl about the series. California schools are at their most precarious point in our state's history. School administrators are now planning the reopening of schools amidst an ongoing pandemic and social unrest. How will they do it? And how will they ensure an educational environment in which all students feel safe and supported? I'm Carl Cohn, host of the new podcast series, Schools on the Front Lines. In each episode, I'll interview school superintendents from around the state to find out how their districts have been affected, how they're addressing these crises, and what the future holds for their students, teachers, and families. As a former teacher, counselor, and school superintendent, I know what these educators are up against as they navigate these uncharted waters. The future of California's education system is being written right now. Coming July 1st to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe, once again, organizing all of this remotely. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>